0: Well, there's been a lot of talk in the news lately about austerity. I don't know how familiar we were with that word uh, before the recent global financial crisis. Uh, Maybe some of you haven't been paying attention and aren't familiar with the word, but that's been a new one for my vocabulary, austerity, uh, as countries like Greece and Italy have been uh, being forced by the European Union to pass these austerity packages where they're having to cut these lavish programs that they've had for a while where people have been able to uh, just live off of debt. The state's been borrowing lots of money, spending lavishly, caring for people in these uh, sweetheart deals, uh, and now these, the, the reality has hit. They've realized that they can't keep living like this, and they're having to make tough decisions cutting these lavish programs, uh, the funding for things, and changing their lifestyle. Uh, it's not just a conversation that's happening in Europe, but it's happening in our country, uh, in our state. We're having to make these hard decisions and, and realize uh, we can't keep spending lavishly. We have to cut back. What's the bare essentials? What's practical? What's, uh, what's worth spending our money on and getting rid of everything extraneous and extravagant? Uh, now that's really good economic sense. That makes really good economic sense. Uh, that's a very good principle to, to look at where the money is going and say what is, where are we getting the most bang for our buck? What is practical? What is going to achieve results? Anything that's lavish or extravagant, let's get rid of it. Yeah, that works well in the financial sector of life. Uh, one of the dangers for some of us is to say, well, that works really well with the bank account, and so I'm going to import those principles into the rest of life as well. So we hold on to these principles that work well financially, and we start to think these are valuable guiding lights for the way to live our lives. Uh, we'll say, don't go overboard, everything in moderation. Waste not, want not. To be practical, frugal, not extravagant, not frivolous. Now, again, those are really good words of advice, very good proverbs when it comes to your bank account. But it can be devastating if you apply those rules to your relationship with Jesus. So, so this might be a surprise for you today. This passage might be hard for you today. But one of the things we're going to see is that Jesus, Loves extravagance. Jesus loves lavish worship. If you've got your Bibles today, will you turn to Mark 14? If you want to use the pew ones in, fr- in front of you, the red ones, it's page 685. We're picking up the story of the life of Jesus. We're continuing his final week on earth before he is crucified and raised from the dead. And we're on Wednesday. So just two days until he's going to be crucified. Chapter 14 picks up with the high priest, with the chief priests and uh, the the leaders plotting how are we going to kill Jesus? How are we going to get him uh, by secrecy and to, to take him away from the crowds and all the popular support he's got and kill him? And as we look at chapter 14, we see the story of the chief priests and Judas working together to hand Jesus over for him to be killed. But in the middle of this story of the chief priests and Judas, we see this other story of a woman who demonstrates lavish worship, extravagance, extraordinary devotion to Jesus. So let's look at this chapter together and see why these two stories are put together and what God's trying to teach us. Chapter 14 of Mark, starting in verse 1. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. What we have here in these 11 verses, uh, structurally, is something that should be familiar to us as we've been reading through Mark. Uh, It's another sandwich. Mark does this sometimes where he sandwiches uh, two stories together. Uh, The slices of the sandwich, the slices of bread, are verses 1 and 2 and then 10 and 11. The story of, of, uh, the outer story of the chief priests and Judas working together to get Jesus killed. And and you could read them right in order and not miss anything. You could read verses 1 and 2 and jump right down to 10 and 11 and it tells a coherent story, a very simple story, how the chief priests were looking to get somebody to betray Jesus and then Judas provided that. And in fact, if you were to read the parallel story in Luke chapter 22, that's exactly what you find. No middle story about what's happening with this woman. The inner story, though, verses 3 through 9, Mark shoves that in between the, the sandwich, between the slices of bread. It's the meat of the sandwich. It means we should be paying attention to it. And actually, this section here, verses 3 through 9, is a flashback. It's not happening at the same period of time. We know that because the parallel account in John 12 places it the day before Palm Sunday. So these events actually happened about a week ago, or at least five or six days ago, where Jesus was sitting at this house with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and and Mary came in and she did this amazing, lavish act for him. So it's a flashback, and that's fine. Mark just takes that story and he tells us in flashback form in between these other uh, sandwiches, uh, slices of bread, and he puts them together. Now it's important to notice that because he's doing something intentionally, saying, look at these two stories together. Make a comparison between the chief priest and Judas and this woman, in her lavish worship. See, the difference between the chief priests, Judas, that whole crew, and this woman, is that they have vastly different valuations of Jesus. The chief priests, Judas, they think Jesus worthless. He should be sold for a handful of silver, that he should be killed at any cost. But this woman, this woman thinks Jesus is of inestimable value. And so she comes with everything she's got, And shows lavish worship to him. So, what I want to do today is to focus on this woman and her attitude of lavish worship. And I want to investigate that some more. I've got five questions for us to walk through to figure out more about her attitude and how we can have the same attitude as her. And so, the five questions that you'll see on your outline today are about lavish worship. First, what is it? What is lavish worship? Secondly, what is the danger of lavish worship? Third, why does lavish worship feel wrong sometimes? Fourth, what is the alternative to lavish worship? And fifth, how can we develop a desire to worship lavishly? So that's where we're going today. First, I want to start with this term. I mean, I've I've made it up. This is a term that I've made up, but I think it's reflective of the passage. So what is lavish worship? Well, first of all, worship, very simply, is just ascribing honor and worth to God. Okay. Worship is just ascribing honor and worth to God. That's what this woman is doing. She comes in and she says, Jesus is the most important person in the room. He's the one I'm going to dump this oil on. He's the one who's set apart from everybody else here. He's the most important person here. I'm going to ascribe worth and honor to him. So it's worship. Now, that's an important thing to notice that, uh, that, that corrects us in one of our common misunderstandings where we think that worship is only singing or it's only something we can do to music. Uh, this woman defined worship as uh, pouring oil on Jesus' head. Okay, so it's not just songs, it's not just music, it's anything that we do to ascribe honor or worth to God. If you want a couple passages to look at later today uh, that, that help support this point, Romans 12.1 would be a great place to go. Uh, Romans 12.1 where he says, Brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Or 1 Corinthians 10.31 It's another place where Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So eating and drinking can be done in a way that is glorifying and honoring to God. So worship is just anything in our whole lives that describes honor and worth to God. Uh, now, lavish, uh, that's, that's a, an interesting word. I gave, I'll give you some synonyms for that. I thought this was fun. Uh, words that mean the same are similar to lavish. You've got ex- extravagance or extravagant. Uh, profligate, I love that one. Uh, over the top, unrestrained, wasteful. The opposite of frugal. lavish. Again, that's what this woman is doing. She comes to Jesus and she anoints him with oil. It's an act of worship, but it's also lavish. It's, it's over the top. It's extravagant. This perfume that she's pouring on his, on his head in verse 3 says it's pure nard, very costly. Uh, now, nard, is a, it comes from the root of a plant that at this time grew in East India. Okay, So get this in your head there in Israel. The plant comes from East India on the, uh, the foothills of the Himalayas. And so it was very expensive, very hard to get, and they actually give us a price tag here of what it was in this time. In verse 5, the people complaining say, This could have sold for more than 300 denarii. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what a denarius was, a denarius. Uh, it was the equivalent of a day's wage. And probably, the best guess, uh, it's probably the buying power of about 25 bucks. So when we calculated out how much the widow gave in her, in her mites to the temple, we figured, well, that was about 39 cents. So, on that same scale, then this perfume would be worth about $7,500. And and if that doesn't sound like a lot to you, that's just because we're Americans and we're very wealthy. So, still, on a worldwide scale, $7,500 is a lot of money. It is a year's wage. It is an incredible rich uh, amount. So, this woman is being very lavish. She's pouring this whole jar of expensive perfume on Jesus. And some people say, that's wasteful. But Jesus says, I love it. So if we put these things together in a definition, just a working definition of what is lavish worship, I would say this. It is unrestrained giving of yourself in order to honor God. An unrestrained giving of yourself in order to honor God. That's what Jesus loves. He loves lavish worship. And this is not something that only happens in this passage. Uh, We saw this just a few weeks ago as we looked at the widow who gave her 39 cents to the temple. Now, much smaller amount, but you still look at that and you think, well, that's all she had. That was lavish. That was wasteful. And yet Jesus approved. Or you could think Old Testament. Go back to the temple. Solomon's temple, this incredible, ostentatious, extravagant gold, uh, precious stones all over the place. When he sacrificed animals to dedicate the temple, he sacrificed 22,000 oxen. 120,000 sheep. That's lavish. That's ostentatious. It's extravagant. Or you can think of David dancing before the ark as the ark was returning to Jerusalem. He's wearing his linen ephod and he's spinning around and he's dancing. He doesn't care who sees. He gets home and his wife says, you made a fool of yourself. And he says, I'll get even more undignified than this because I'm not dancing for the people. I'm worshiping my Lord. This is what God loves. He loves all-out, extravagant, over-the-top demonstrations of worship. Now, what is the danger of lavish worship? That's what it is. It's an unrestrained giving of yourself to honor God. What's the danger of it? Well, we open ourselves up to criticism. I didn't say it was a valid danger, but it's a, I mean, we, we feel this. We open ourselves up to criticism. You look in verse 3, this woman does a beautiful thing. She does this this expression of lavish worship, pouring the oil on his head, and immediately you get folks in verse 4 saying, why did she do this? They're criticizing her to herself. They start out mumbling to themselves indignantly, and by the end they're scolding her, saying, how dare you waste all of this money on this this symbolic, impractical, over-the-top action? And the really sad thing uh, this week is that as I read this passage, I totally found myself identifying with these guys. Uh, you know, this, this is me. I mean, this, this is my history. I remember hearing about a church plant, a, a new church plant. They didn't have a building. They didn't have anything. Uh, and, and they were talking about the vision of their church and what they wanted to be. And, and the pastor said that he had seen this statue, this bronze statue of Jesus washing the feet of A disciple, and he said, "You know, that's the ethos I want in our church. I want that sort of servant leadership to be permeating our church. And I would love someday down the road for us to have a statue like that in our church. Now, you're not going to have it for a while because it's cost forty thousand dollars. Pretty, pretty pricey. Well, just a few weeks after that, someone had heard that he said this. They got an anonymous check for forty thousand dollars, and they bought the statue. And I thought, how ridiculous!" You are a brand new church plant. You don't even have a building. What could you do with $40,000? And it's not just that church. It's kind of my attitude towards churches a lot. I see what people are doing. I see their big Christmas programs or a new building or the things they're spending their time and money on. And my instinct is to say, what are they doing? Don't they realize the effective things they could be accomplishing for the gospel? They're wasting their money. And I thought I was being pretty holy in that criticism. And then I realized, I'm the bad guy in this passage. That's what the bad guys are saying. And what Jesus says to people like me is, leave them alone. Leave them alone. They've chosen to honor me in this way. And it's not for you, Dan, to be the judge and jury on whether or not that is what I like. The thrust of verse seven here is really Jesus saying to the criticizers, "You have to be responsible for you." Notice all the times you shows up in verse seven. He says, "You always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. Don't sit there and say, "Oh, look at all the good these people could be doing for the poor. It's a lot easier to criticize other people for not doing good than it is for you to get off your hand and go do good. And so Jesus says, "You focus on you." Now, I recognize that some of you are not like me. Some of you probably are, and, and this, that one's hitting, so let it hit there. Uh, but some of you aren't. Some of you are on the other side. You're more like the woman uh, who wants to do the lavish worship, and yet you're afraid of the criticism. You recognize that this danger's there, that there's people like me hanging out, ready to tell you that was a bad move. You know, you, you might be afraid uh, to express yourself in the worship times that we have at church. Uh, You might be afraid to sing loudly or to raise your hands or clap or whatever it is you feel like doing because you think there's going to be someone standing next to you who's going to criticize you and say that's not a valid expression of worship. Um, You might really want to share with somebody something that you got out of the word this morning, something that really meant a lot to you, but you're afraid that if if you really open yourself up that way and you really share with them what's going on in your heart, if they just give you that look of of criticism or questioning, or, or why do you care so much? It's going to shut you down. You might really want to be sold out for Jesus in every area of your life, but you're just a little afraid of what people are going to say about you if you end up being that ostentatious, extravagant, passionate person. And so for you, I want you to be encouraged by Jesus today. And let Him encourage you because He loves that sort of thing. He loves extravagant worship. He loves you being passionate and giving everything you've got to Him. He loves you stepping out in faith and being willing to be criticized by other people because only His opinion matters. And I'm going to try really hard to stop being a barrier in your way from doing that. Now, What is lavish worship? It's an unrestrained giving of yourself in order to honor God. We can shy away from it because of criticism, either giving or receiving. Uh, Third now, and I want to speak again to the dominant culture of our church, why does lavish worship feel wrong? So for some of you, it doesn't feel wrong. You're like, it feels like the best thing in the world. Great. This is an easy one for you. Uh, But for the rest of us, sometimes lavish worship feels wrong. Uh, For those of us who are frugal and reserved and midwestern and engineers and children of the Depression, uh, we uh, you know, who have that sort of culture, we resist extravagance. We, we sit right there with these guys and say, what a waste. Why do we do that? Why does it feel wrong? Well, two reasons. First, it's because we undervalue the beauty of the created world. Okay? We're just too focused on what's practical. That's become the, the definition of what is good. Is it practical? Does it achieve something? Well, then it's good. Does it not? Well, then it's no good. You know, we look at the story and we think, oh, great, Jesus smells nice now. What did that accomplish? Couldn't you have written a card to honor him or maybe used a cheaper perfume or something? I mean, use your brain here. Did you think this through? But practical is not Jesus' criteria. He looks at what this woman has done, and he, sh- he says in verse 6, she has done a beautiful thing. It's just a beautiful thing. Not a practical thing. A beautiful thing. It doesn't accomplish anything, but it's a beautiful experience. See, to be godly does not mean that we have to let go of beauty, that we can't enjoy the created world. To be godly doesn't mean that we have to be practical all the time. Uh, The best meal that I've ever eaten was thoroughly impractical. Uh, When when I was in seminary, uh, Jen and I had some some friends who babysat our kids every week, uh, I think a couple times a week, while she took a class with me. And they just did it for us because they lived near us and they they were nice. So at the end of the semester, we decided we'd take them out to a nice dinner. And for us at that time, it was a really nice dinner. Uh, we were seminary students and didn't have a lot of money. And I think for the four of us, like, we didn't get uh, drinks or, um, or dessert, and I, I think our bill was somewhere over $150 uh, for a meal. So it was expensive. It was lavish. I'm telling you, that was the best meal I've ever eaten in my life. I mean, I don't remember meals. I remember that one. I had New Zealand venison with raspberry chutney, and it was incredible. <laughs> it was amazing. And, and I just, oh, it was so good. I mean, and, and so I praise God for that meal. I mean, literally, I praise God for that meal. I thank him for the beauty of taste buds and food and the, uh, the richness of that experience. You know, he's made us as created people in a physical world, and one of the things he wants to do is to enjoy it. And if you think that's crazy, then here's another assignment. Read First Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. Okay, you just check that one out. God says, enjoy food. He says, get married. It's a false teaching from the devil to say that that godliness means uh, dour-faced, hiding out, not enjoying anything in this life. See, one of our problems with giving Jesus lavish worship is we've just got a problem with lavishness in general. We've got a problem with enjoying the created world. And sometimes that gets in the way of us appreciating and demonstrating the worth of Jesus. Uh, The second thing that can be a hindrance for us in giving lavish worship is that we just undervalue the worth of Jesus. Okay, So sometimes we don't worship lavishly because we don't appreciate the way the physical world brings joy, but sometimes we don't worship Jesus lavishly because we just don't think he's worth it. Uh, We don't think that he's worthy of an outrageous, over-the-top display of affection. In verse 8, Jesus points out that this woman sees something that no one else saw. He says, She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. Or she anticipated beforehand that he would die and be buried. He said this woman was looking at Jesus. Okay? She saw him clearly. Nobody else saw Jesus clearly. She saw he was headed to the cross. She saw that he was going to die and that she needed to mark him out in this um, in this perfume spectacle anointing him for burial in this honoring way. She saw that. Everybody else was looking at the money. Uh, and, the, and the poor. They looked at, at the money and they saw, that's a hun- that's, that's 300 denarii. That's a lot of money. We could do a lot of good for the poor. This woman wasn't looking at the money first. She looked at Jesus first. She looked at Jesus. She saw Jesus is of infinite worth. He's going to die for me. That's where he's headed. He's worth everything I've got. And so she gave him what she had. See that phrase there in verse 8? She has done what she could. Literally, she she did what she had. It's the same phrase for the widow who gave her final pennies. She gave what she had. It's the same thing Jesus demanded of the rich young ruler in chapter 10. Give what you have away. This is Jesus wants. He wants us to see him, to see his infinite value, his infinite worth, and say, compared with that, everything I've got is not worth anything. Of course I'll sacrifice this bottle of perfume that's worth $7,000. It's it's nothing compared with the worth of Jesus. Now, this is not to say that we aren't to help the poor. I need to say that here because that's a misinterpretation of this passage. Jesus is not saying don't help the poor, but he's saying it's about priority. Are you looking first at the poor, or are you looking first at Jesus? Is Jesus the most important thing, or is money, or helping people, or any other thing? Right? He's saying, put Jesus first, everything else falls into place. This is a lot like uh, that, that really great teaching about marriage. Right? If you want to really love your children, you better love your spouse. Like if, you, if you really want to bless your kids, then you actually need to love your spouse more than you love your children. Maybe that's new to you. I mean, that shouldn't be new to you. That's, That's an important biblical principle. If you love your kids more than you love your spouse, that's going to be bad for your children because your marriage will disintegrate and your kids need a healthy marriage. But if you love your spouse more than you love your children, then it's good for your kids because you'll have a healthy marriage with your spouse and a great place in which to raise your family. Right? Same principle. Love Jesus first. Love him more than the poor. And in doing that, you will love the poor. Because if you've got a heart that is uh, consumed with worship and love for Christ, you're going to overflow with compassion and mercy for the poor. But if you are primarily concerned with helping the poor and you kind of put Jesus on the shelf or forget about him, you're going to burn out. You're not going to really love the poor. You're not going to be able to sustain that over the long haul. See, if you want to be practical, I mean, I know we're practical people, so you want to be practical, here's an application. To the extent that you get lavish worship of Jesus built into the center of your life, everything else will get better. To the extent that you get Jesus in the center of your life, everything else will get better. See, this is a thoroughly practical message because we were designed to worship God. We were designed to give Jesus everything. And if we don't do that, then we're out of whack. You know, the, the solar system works really well because the sun is at the center. When the sun is at the center of the solar system, all the planets behave they all stay in their orbits. They're not hitting each other. Everything works really well. I don't have Brian to corroborate this, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Now, if you were to take the sun and move it from the, ed- from the center of the solar system to, like, next to Jupiter, chaos. I mean, chaos. Planets crash into each other, the whole solar system falling apart, all because the sun got moved out of its proper place. Right? So in this illustration, Jesus is the sun. You got that one? Jesus is supposed to be in the middle of your life. You get him there, everything else falls into place. You get Jesus in the of your life, I'm not concerned about your care for the poor because you're going to love the poor. Lavish worship, it's what we were designed for. It's what Jesus calls us to. If we recognize the worth of Jesus, we'll respond in lavish worship and we'll give him our whole life blessing other people. Lavish worship, it's the unrestrained giving of yourself to honor God. We can be afraid of it because of criticism We can think it's wrong because we don't appreciate the beauty of the created world or we don't value Jesus enough. But what's the alternative? The alternative is greed. Judas models that very well for us in verses 10 and 11. He's the complete opposite of this woman. This is why Mark made this sandwich to show us the contrast between lavish worship and greed. This woman worships Jesus with uncalculating devotion. And Judas calculates how much he can get for Jesus. He goes to the chief priests. In Matthew it says he asks them, how much will you give me? And he sells Jesus for a handful of silver. The parallel passage in John 12 gives us more information about Judas. It says that he was actually the ringleader asking this question, why didn't you sell this and give the money to the poor? And then John fills us in a little bit more and he says the reason why Judas asked that question was not because he was a generous person who cared about the poor. It's because he was in control of the money bag and he liked to take a little bit off the top for himself. See, this is Judas. someone who doesn't care about Jesus, doesn't care about others, but is consumed with gen- with greed and love of money. You know, Jesus had said quite clearly, you can't serve both God and money and Judas is a great example hung out with Jesus for three years and sells them because he's not getting the cash that he wanted. Now greed, I hope you realize, is not just something that people who spend a lot of money suffer from. You can be greedy and demonstrate that greed by spending lots of money and getting lots of stuff for yourself or you can be greedy by never spending your money and hoarding it. And just liking the the numbers in your bank account rise and piling up. You can be like Scrooge McDuck, just loving to swim in your giant pile of coins. And I just love the money. I don't buy anything with it. I just like to have it. It brings me comfort and security. But either way, it's the exact opposite of lavish worship. Lavish worship is a posture of generosity, of, of, of expansiveness, of giving of yourself to something bigger than yourself. And when you do that, it makes you bigger. It makes you more generous and more expansive. It makes you more like Jesus. But greed whether it's greed that's focused on spending money for yourself or hoarding money for yourself it makes you smaller. It it takes you inward. You're excluding yourself from other people, from God. You're becoming more selfish, uh, more greedy, more small-minded so that you can end up trading Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So here's another thing for you to think about this afternoon, a question for you. Which direction are you headed? You can be headed towards lavish worship more and more, or you can be headed towards greed and selfishness and smallness. Which way are you going? Are you more and more like this woman, more generous, more inclined to give extravagantly of yourself to God and then to others? Or are you becoming more and more small-minded, more selfish, more mean, more uh, tight-fisted? Which direction are you heading? Judas traded Jesus for a handful of coins, and I don't want you to do that. And you don't either. So how do we develop that? Question five. How do we develop a desire to worship Jesus lavishly? We look at the lavish love of Jesus at the cross. If you want to develop a desire to worship lavishly, you just need to look at the cross. The cross is everywhere in, in this passage. It's, it's hiding in the, in the wings. Uh, in verse one, it says that they were seeking to kill him. Right? We know they're trying to kill him. They're going to kill him on the cross. Verse eight She's anointing him beforehand for his burial. Why is, he, why is he anointing for burial? Because he's going to die. Uh, verse uh, 10 and 11, Judas is going to hand Jesus over. What's the result of that? Jesus is going to die on the cross. See, it's everywhere in this passage. And that is what motivates us to worship Jesus lavishly. When we see the beauty of the lavish love of God demonstrated to us in the cross. Right? Here's the facts. Right, Remember the facts. We deserve to die. We sinned. We uh, are enemies of God and because of that rebellion we deserve death. Not just death at the end of our lives and then nothingness but death at the end of our lives and then judgment, eternal punishment for our infinite rebellion against our creator. That's what we deserve. But God, because of the great love he had, while we were still his enemies, he died for us. That is, he sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus said, I've got this one. They're all enemies. They're all deserving of death. But I've got this one. I'm going to step in. I'm going to give my life for them. And Jesus gives his life. That's what he gives. Do you see this? Jesus is not showing up at our doorstep saying, here's a $7,500 worth of perfume, here's here's my gift for you. No, he gives his life. He gives his life, his perfect life. The infinite Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, living in perfect love and harmony and glory with God the Father, God the Son, from all eternity, he gave that life for you. And do you see what a waste that was? What an extravagance, what an over-the-top gift that is. Jesus giving his life for yours? Him laying down his perfect life for rebels like you and me? Except it wasn't a waste. It was the most beautiful thing in the world. And when you see that, when you see the beauty of the lavish love of Jesus for you, when you finally realize you don't deserve this at all, and yet he's given it to you. Well, then your heart overflows with worship. That's where it comes from. So I want to caution you not to try to use a shortcut. I don't want you to, to start at point number one and say, Jesus loves lavish worship. Shortcut, I'm going to start doing that. Uh, I'm, Jesus, God wants money? I'll give him lots of money. Uh, God wants lots of ostentatious displays of worship? I can do that. I can do that. I can be over the top. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your animals. He doesn't want your statues. He doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want those things unless he has your heart. Okay. So get the order right. Look at the cross. Be overcome with the lavish love of Jesus for you. Let that well up in your heart to then worship him. Don't think that you can buy him with your actions. I'm going to close practically again. Three ways this week that I came up with that you might be able to demonstrate this lavish worship. So you've looked at the cross. You've seen the glory of Jesus. You love him. You want to demonstrate for him how much you love him. You want to tell other people you want to let go, be extravagant, over the top. How can you do that this week? Here's some ideas. First, you could be lavish in your time. And the time that you spend with Jesus. Uh, go ahead and turn off the TV this week. You've got my permission. Nobody was making you watch it anyway. Uh, turn off the TV. Pick up a Bible one night. Just just read it. Take some time. Re- read the Word of God. Take a little time to pray. Maybe journal something or, or talk with somebody else about what you're learning. That's not really that extravagant, but for some of us, it it's a big step. Be lavish in your time. Give Jesus your time. Say, I love you. I want to be with you. Have a little date night. That's not too weird for you. Uh, Secondly, uh, you can be lavish in your words this week. Lavish in your testimony. You've received a a phenomenal gift. You have. You've been changed. I know it. You've been changed by the gospel of Jesus. It's changed your life. Don't hoard that. Don't, Don't be so afraid of the criticism you're going to get from other people. Uh, that you're not willing to tell them, passionately even, that Jesus is the most important person in my life. I love him even more than my spouse. Uh, he's changed me. Or, I've read something in the Bible today, and, and it it was it really spoke to me. Someone asks you, uh, how are you doing today? I think, I say, great, I was just reading this morning in Proverbs, and I read this verse, and it was just really good this morning. you be lavish in your words. Tell people about Jesus. Let people into the reality of your inner life. Like, I know that you love Jesus, okay? I know you. I know you love Jesus. Let other people know you love Jesus. Be lavish in that. Uh, Third, we can be lavish in our emotions. This might be hard for some of us. Uh, It's okay to cry. It's okay, like when you're praying, to to cry. Like that can happen. That's all right. Uh, I don't intentionally try to model that for you up here, but I do that sometimes. You've caught me. It's okay to be passionate about your relationship with Jesus and to, and to let your emotions go. It's okay to be really excited about something and to tell people that you're really excited about it. If you do get moved in music uh, and, and you want to move your body and raise your hands or clap or kneel or do something, do it. Okay? It's fine. Jesus loves you listening to the Spirit and responding in whatever ways you can demonstrate your love for him. Just be over the top. Okay, I'm not concerned that we're going to go too far with this. Let yourself go and follow the Spirit and be lavish in your emotions. So so this week, some ideas. there's, There's other ways you can do this, but some ideas. Be lavish in your time. Be lavish in your words. Be lavish in your emotions. Let Jesus and the world know that you really honor him and value him. Jesus loves lavish worship. He loves extravagance. So, Let's try this week, in response to the glory of the gospel, to give our whole lives to him and to honor him with everything we've got. Let's pray. Father, you are worth everything. Um, we've, we have scratched the surface today. And and for our whole lives, if we devoted every minute of our lives to studying and talking about and singing about your greatness and the love that you've shown us in the cross, we we would not even come close to beginning to talk about how wonderful you are. And so we're grateful that we've got eternity to look forward to where we can glory in that forever and never plumb the depths of your goodness. And we thank you that we now have our lives as an opportunity to live in such a way that we bring honor and glory to you. Father, this week, would you be working right now in our hearts to show each of us what we can change in our lives, where we can honor you. Free us from a fear of criticism. Free us from a fear of of enjoying this world. Free us from undervaluing you. That we be liberated to just live lives of people who are transformed by the gospel and show everyone how great you are. Thank you, Lord, for the example of this woman. This example that you promised would be proclaimed everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. Thank you for what she did, for her wasteful action that challenged me this week to submit myself to you. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.